I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the great robot wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. All right. Hello, everybody. These are extraordinary times, and I hope you are well. My show today focuses on COVID-19, the coronavirus. You're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My expert guest today is UC Presidential Chair Professor Oladeli Agunsetin, who founded UCI's Department of Population Health and Disease Prevention. He was there 2007 to 2019. He was educated at Harvard, UC Berkeley, University of Tennessee, among others. So let's just get right into it by telephone. Welcome, Professor Agunsetin. Are you there? Uh, thank you for that introduction. I did do a fellowship at Harvard. I didn't um, get a degree from there, just to make sure. But I am so proud of my UC linkage to Berkeley, and of course, I'm a dye-in-the-wool anteater. <laughs> well, fantastic, Professor. You know, I'd love to get an up-close and uh, personal interview with you uh, another time, but what's really uh, pressing is obviously the coronavirus, um, COVID-19 Last week, um, I interviewed uh, at length um, Andrew Neumer, who is a um, public health um, pandemic specialist. And can you please give us your perspectives on where we are um, and where we're going? Yes. Uh, first, I want to wish everyone well, practice prevention. That's uh, a lesson that we should not let go even after this terrible phase is over. The world has never experienced a pandemic from a coronavirus. Uh, these are viruses that the molecular biologists and virologists world know well. They are prevalent in wildlife, animal populations. Uh, we've seen them before in human populations. And when this one came out, we first called it uh, a new coronavirus, uh, because it's a new strain. And um, one of the challenges our world faces is what we now call the One Health Paradigm, because viruses that can pass from animals, whether it's wildlife or domestic animals, to humans are probably going to be with us um, indefinitely, we just have to learn to manage them well. The environment also plays a role in that context because without the environment, air, water, food, um, we can block many of these by just severing our ties to the animals we know are carriers, but we can't do that. So right now, the, the word pandemic uh, was used by WHO very deliberately. There are more than 100 countries that have experienced at least one case of coronavirus infection, COVID-19, to be specific. And what that means is it's now more than half uh, the countries 
registered by the United Nations in the world. The definition of a pandemic really means that everyone on the planet uh, can be infected, is vulnerable. And that's, you know, 8 billion people or so that have the potential for suffering the illness or dying based on their underlying conditions, age, and all of the risk factors that we know. Uh, the number of deaths exceed now 5,000 from my most recent uh, search of the reliable site. Um, but it's going to be climbing uh, just because uh, we can only know when somebody dies, if they've been diagnosed before they die or after they die, that the tests are done. And so in places like Africa, the number of cases is still relatively low but part of the challenge is we don't have as much testing as probably as widespread in China, Europe, the United States. Mm. So in the U.S., uh, we, we now have more than, um, you know, several states, almost every state, I think, outside of West Virginia has recorded a case. And the number of deaths, uh, especially among the elderly, uh, will continue to rise. And, and that's why we have all the uh, policymakers and politicians uh, putting more restrictions uh, on, on the movement of people. The Bay Area, San Francisco area, several counties have the shelter-in-place uh, policy, uh, which is not the same as uh, lockdown. Uh, but, again, we're moving closer to more restrictive uh, policies to control person-to-person uh, -person transmission. Do you, do you anticipate that uh, shelter-in-place will come to Orange County and Irvine? Yeah, we're very close to Los Angeles, and mm -hmm. typically the larger the metropolitan area, the, the larger the the higher we should expect the number of cases. Now, they may be sparsely distributed in the population, but the more difficult it will be to control the movement of people outside of that large metropolis. So if, if you think about the commuting that takes place on 405 or 5 freeway, on a regular normal day, no pandemic, it's, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands and thousands of people per hour, driving up and down. Right. And so we're just beginning to realize uh, what we've taken for granted. So I would not be surprised if the number of cases in the L.A. metropolitan area uh, increases. I think the mayor will agree with me, and we have to be prepared. And beyond that, uh, we have to start thinking about, you know, suburb communities like in Orange County. Incidentally, the very last class of my graduate course this quarter, which is our a seminar course for Masters in Public Health students, some undergraduates are allowed to enroll if they're really highly motivated. Uh, we were addressing the topic of interprofessional practice, and I presented them a case study to imagine Irvine in a 
shelter-in-place or lockdown situation. How will they, as public health professionals, bring other professions to the table to think through all of the things we would have to uh, put in place to make sure people continue to be safe, the food, the transportation, the security. Uh, and so public health stands at the center, but very collaborative with all of these uh, professions uh, in situations like this. And it's actually also been uh, the way public health is practiced, but it's easier to see it when we have emergencies like this. So, you know, that scenario, that case study that I presented to them, I remember my last message to them is, don't think this is just an exercise. It may very well happen. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope it doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we will be very well prepared. You know, the students, we went to the website of the Irvine City Council, looked at what they have, some notice that there's no explicit department of public health. Uh, maybe that will be a recommendation. But, you know, I can't guarantee, nobody can guarantee how many cases we'll have locally, but that our officials will be prepared to declare a shelter-in-place or lockdown uh, when it's called for. You know, I'm surprised with the number of employers, which seems to be 95%. Uh, everybody is at home, working from home and so forth. Why are bars and why are uh, workout facilities? Is that Does shelter-in-place close those down then, or, or, or why are those still open? Do, do you know? <laughs> yeah, I, it's... So there are some things that, that are easier to do than, than others. Um, actually, this afternoon I was supposed to travel to UCLA to be part of the, you know, to attend you know, a session of the, the Board of Regents meetings, and everybody called in by Zoom. This is, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, so it was easy to do that under a shelter-in-place type you know, or, you know, distance, social distancing scenario. What we don't want is that we put such restrictive movement of people that we trade protection from virus infection for other health impacts. It's, you know, the, the impact of social isolation for people who live alone, they can't go to exercise, they can go to a restaurant. Uh, the mental health issues that might come out of that um, will be with us for a long time. So when we have pandemics like this and people are afraid and they can't move, the, the, the grocery stores are emptied of toilet paper and, and canned food and all that stuff, people can get into a funky state mentally, yeah. uh, depression, and that doesn't go away easily. Mm. So I think allowing certain operations to continue on the limited circumstances. Maybe bars have to close by 11 a.m. Gyms have to close at certain hours, so it's, it's not free for all. And, and that those who are responsible for operating uh, those facilities are well-trained and educated about making sure everyone who visits uh, is safe. Got you. The, yeah, the emergency response system of every city in this country is stretched at this point, and we don't want to add more mm -hmm. to their burden. 
Uh, gotcha. Professor, just hang on for a second. For, for those of you who joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UC Presidential Professor Oladeli Agunsetin, who is a UCI and world-recognized expert on population health and disease prevention. And of course, we're talking about the coronavirus. So um, please, Professor, uh, continue with, with your insights. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was explaining why we can be very restrictive in in moving people from one place to the other and asking people to stay home. Um, But people still have to eat, so restaurants uh, have to be able to to cook. And I think some of the shelter-in-place rules are that they must only serve you know, take away or people come in and, and, and get their food or they can deliver. You know, we, even in Orange County, we have uh, a population of elderly citizens who depend on food delivery, on, on social services. And so if we shut everything down, uh, we're going to exacerbate the conditions and more people will fall sick or die. There was an article in the L.A. Times, I think it was not too long ago, maybe last week, about the consequences of of closing schools, um, which we know we have to do. But the the person who wrote the article worked for the United Nations uh, for UNICEF, and he pointed out that when the Ebola outbreak happened in West Africa and they, they closed schools, there were many kids who didn't have access to their daily meals, which mm. they count on the schools to, uh, to provide. Mm. So one of the things we have to think through is not a knee-jerk reaction of shutting things down, but to think through what the, um, the, the, separately, the consequences would be for other health sectors, you know, malnutrition and stress and mental, and then provide the backup services that will support those things as well. Gotcha. And um, I just see that there was a county health officer um, issued, released just just this afternoon from the uh, county health officer, Dr. Nicole Quick, who yeah. who's said that uh, right along with what you're talking about, we are taking mitigation steps in line with directive from the, the governor. Uh, we recognize community members may experience anxiety related to social disruption caused by the coronavirus. Want to encourage residents to reach out to loved ones using appropriate methods, telephone, video messaging, email, and text. So, um, yeah, the, it, this yeah. it's so multi-layered. Yes, I'm happy. Uh, I, I've known Dr. Nicole Quick since she took over from my good friend, uh, Dr. Um, Handler, Eric Handler, who retired last year and was supposed to celebrate his one year after retirement last week, Saturday. We had to postpone it. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but you know, this, we're in good hands. I know the folks at the Orange County Healthcare Agency very well. I think uh, the Health Improvement Partnership of Orange County is where I first met Dr. Quick. And, you know, they have to respond uh, not just to what we see in the newspapers, uh, but it's a whole network all the way to the you know, California Department of Public Health, the CDC, the World Health Organization, and, of course, also being responsive to the local health needs in our county, which has to do with 
the distribution of age groups, socioeconomic status, you know, occupation. You know, some of my students earlier this week uh, asked me about, you know, I teach a course, Global Health Ethics. It's an online course, and I'm very happy we developed it right on time for moments like this. And they were stressed, and I understand that they're stressed. And some of them said, why don't we not have the final exam? Mm -hmm. And I, I reminded them that I, I know you're stressed, but there are so many public health workers in the front lines now all over the world. They're equally stressed. Mm -hmm. When we train a workforce uh, for public health, we have to understand that they are committing to a life of service mm -hmm. where they can put aside some of their own worries, mm -hmm. like taking a final exam, mm -hmm. and um, be ready to serve. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I just wanted to use that as a lesson that there are people who cannot stay home mm -hmm. uh, because they're helping others in need. Mm -hmm. And that's the mission of public health. Mm -hmm. And so we need to make sure those who are joining the workforce for public health uh, have that understanding. Mm. And, and I think that encouraged them to you know, stick with it, take their final exams from their laptops, wherever in the world they may be, and uh, they will learn and join the workforce uh, that we badly need uh, yeah. in this country and all over the world. You know, Professor, it's, it's particularly times like these that you are just so grateful for the people who are in public health and in medicine. It's, uh, yeah, boy, you don't really think about it until you need it. And then when you need it, boy, it it makes a huge impression. Yeah. We, we t you know, what, one thing we say about public health is um, if it's working, you shouldn't notice. Mm -hmm. And so we take it for granted. It's when things are not working mm -hmm. that we have emergencies like this. Uh, but, you know, as I mentioned, I think when you and I talked earlier uh, ye yesterday, I'm on a, a grant supported by U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, called the One Health Workforce uh, Next Generation. You know, we need to train more people uh, in, in, in this field uh, because the population of the world is going to continue to increase barring devastating disasters uh, like this mm -hmm. uh, and people are going to be more and more connected mm -hmm. uh, despite the age of the internet and Facebook and stuff uh, I think what has happened last week in this country has showed us that we still are a population that interact diseases, viruses go from person to person very quickly, in the airplane, on the boats, in shopping malls, uh, restaurants, and um, we need more people who are trained, at least in the basic competencies of public health and disease prevention, to be in those facilities and jobs so that we can quickly respond to any potential outbreak. Gotcha. A couple items, Professor. Does public health address the food situation? Because, boy, I think just as members of the general public, you're somewhat shocked from a few days ago. The shelves were starting to get, you know, a little low here and there. But then over the weekend, 
boy, I mean, there were whole aisles that were totally clean. I down. know. I <laughs> I took pictures. Uh, Albert in Trader Joe's. I, you know, my wife Alison and I even went uh, Gelsons, thinking, well, things are expensive. At you know, my <laughs> wife went there yesterday. I thought the exact same thing. <laughs> it was all gone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, is on a serious note, uh, yeah, it, public health de- deals with traditionally food inspections. I mean, it's public health agencies must inspect restaurants for safety and cleanliness and hygiene, but also food delivery. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one other thing I do is I'm on the board of um, uh, 211 OC, which is a call center, and we've traditionally dealt with you know, homeless populations in the county um, and, and you know, marking people with, with where food is available. Uh, there's a, you know, ending hunger in, in those seas that Eric Candler has worked on for years. There are hungry people in our county. And when I see, you know, that, those empty shelves, and these are, you know, these are people like me, and I, I'm not claiming, you know, innocent here, who want, uh, security for the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. And so we emptied the shelves, but we want to make sure that those who are in need, who have always been in need in our communities, are also able to secure uh, the kind of food. I mean, restaurants that used to you know, provide food for, for homeless, for, for the mm-hmm. hungry, mm-hmm. Uh, now they probably are facing their own economic downturns and not able to do that. So mm-hmm. I just urge those who may have excess food mm-hmm. that they've either stored, if you have stored more than you need, please uh, consider donating uh, to the shelters. This is part of public health because, as I mentioned earlier, we may end up with much more difficult problems to solve or may- maybe even make the COVID-19 uh, pandemic worse mm-hmm. because we're adding on top of it uh, stressors uh, that uh, create other kinds of health issues. Mm. Uh, another item, pr- Professor, that you know they've been identifying that uh, the disease is particularly destructive with people 65 years and older with underlying health <laughs> issues. Then again, I think that doctor in China, one of the uh, initial identifiers who raised the red flag, he died. Is there any idea why he seemed like he probably was in his late thirties? Or yeah, I think he was thirty-seven. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's still a lot of uh, scientific research and data coming in about this uh, COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. You know, what what is clear is we cannot take anything for granted. Uh, even my daughters, who are young adults, sent me data from Korea showing that um, younger people were infected more. Maybe they don't die more, but you know, maybe maybe being carriers, um, so they they don't have symptoms, and, and so it's clear that anything that affects respiratory systems like this virus, the elderly, that you know, long long-term smokers, um, anything that affects your lung function. Yeah, you you know, people like that are going to be more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Anybody who has a, already, you know, immunodeficiency-type situations, they're taking drugs, 
uh, to lower their immune response, uh, maybe against uh, uh, transplants, um, cancer. Uh, these viruses uh, can debilitate uh, the system for just powering up the body. If you can't get oxygen in there very easily, uh, it doesn't take the human body uh, too long to shut down. So I think the, the guideline about the elderly um, was just that that's what we know about viruses that infect and, and affect the, the respiratory system. Now, you know, there are also questions about why not infants and children. We haven't seen that many um, deaths amongst, uh, and hope we don't, mm -hmm. those who are just developing their their immune system and their respiratory systems are still weak. But there are all kinds of scientific hypotheses that are being proposed and tested right now. Uh, but I, I think the best approach is to think that all of us, because you never really know if you have an underlying condition that has not been diagnosed, right? Mm -hmm. So all of us should really take the precaution. Uh, don't think it's just the elderly and the, you know, mm -hmm. it, you know, especially for young people who traditionally feel like they're invincible to all kinds of risk factors. Yeah. I think this is a time to be cognizant that there is still a lot that we can learn scientifically. There was an advice from a British colleague who said, don't think you're protecting yourself by taking the preventive approaches, washing hands, uh, masks. If you have at the back of your mind that you're trying to prevent others from getting what you may already have, you will be more effective, right? Mm -hmm. So it's more about, I don't want to infect my neighbor. Mm -hmm. That makes you more responsible mm -hmm. than trying to keep everybody away. Mm -hmm. So if we all have that uh, frame of mind um, to not get anybody else uh, sick, uh, that's a good way to go. So regardless of what the age group you're in, uh, please try to do that. Gotcha. Are we doing enough? Are, are there any areas that you think that we should do more? It is such a multifaceted uh, challenge uh, that it's hard to second-guess what we're already doing. Mm. Um, we can throw money at it. We can throw... Walkers, you know, my heart went for those early teachers in China with healthcare workers essentially collapsing from, you know, stress and overwork. Um, where we don't want to go is overwhelming our healthcare system. That's why all of these shelter in place and social distances, that's why they're important. Because if we have too many people needing care inside hospitals with the respirators. We just don't have the resources for that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think any country can, can do that. Italy has been a case study for many of us watching this because it occurred so rapidly, and what happens then is that the death rate uh, will go up. So uh, the best we can do now. I think there are many policies that are in place, even if we started them a little late. Uh, mm -hmm. But this is also the time for us, if we have not already done so, uh, 
um, to build up the capacity in this country uh, for emergency uh, isolation centers. My understanding is we actually don't have that. There may be only one official uh, center in the U.S. for putting people in quarantine and isolation and so for really high-level pathogens. Mm-hmm. You know, we need, just like when we had the Cold War going, we mm-hmm. built shelters in every corner. Mm-hmm. Now, we can do it. Mm-hmm. We have the resources to do it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I think we, when we go, get past a, an emergency, we revert back to our, you know, cutting all the, you know, health care and global health and infrastructure. You know, now I hope the population is awake to know that this is priority because when you are spending to deal with the problem, you spend a lot more. You know, this morning uh, the proposal from the federal government is $800 billion uh, to put into this situation. Imagine if we had spent that much money building facilities, uh, investing in prevention. Mm -hmm. We would probably not be here (laughs) uh, in this situation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, are we doing enough? Um, I I think we will, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but uh, we need to keep that momentum Mm -hmm. after this phase is over. Mm -hmm. And hopefully this phase will not be too long that it drains all of our resources, um, but that we need to be mindful when we're voting and considering bills and the economy that investing for prevention is always cheaper mm-hmm. than dealing with the problem after the fact. You're listening to KUCI and UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest is UCI Professor Aladeli Agun Satan. Did I get that pronunciation right? You did. Everyone calls me Delhi, so that's good. (laughs) Fantastic. Professor Delhi is a public health expert with a wide spectrum of integration in different fields. So um, it's great to have you here, Professor. Thank you. So right now, it seems like most employers have said stay home for a couple weeks, but it, it sure sounds like it's going to be longer. Can you comment on that, or are you hesitant to do that? Uh, yeah, I can. I, I think we're all sort of doing a, you know, it's a, it's a process where you're, you're guessing mm-hmm. how long it might be, but you don't want to overshoot um, so because it's expensive <laughs> for, mm-hmm. you know, for employers and for employees. Uh, and the longer things like this go on, the more other challenges emerge. I think the whole world is going to be looking at, at Wuhan, China, and Northern Italy, how they've been able to uh, you know, do the, the quarantine of the whole city um, and, and what challenges. Uh, to face so that we can be better prepared. Uh, the, the, you know, we have in public health what we call the systems uh, thinking. So, you know, when you close schools, for example, immediately parents with small kids 
it's a big challenge for them. They have to stay home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, healthcare, um, not just for for kids, you know, daycare and all of those things that are not available. The, you know, you don't want the kids to get sick, but you know, parents have to be there. That's the job of parents, and that's uh, so. The employers, they two weeks, and I, I know UC President Janet Napolitano just. Uh, announced that UC employees uh, will be eligible for, I think it's 280 hours, um, and many employ- employers are doing the same thing. Uh, the federal government is considering uh, handing out a $1,000. Uh, we still have a lot of employers who don't do enough uh, to make sure that people can stay home and take care of themselves. But at the same time, we're worried about the economy, right? Mm-hmm. If this goes on too long and many of these big corporations go out of business, are bankrupt or, you know, yeah. whatever the stock market yeah. does, right. then it prolongs, <laughs> right. you know, that, that whole scenario just becomes a nightmare for, for many people. So we want, people want to work, but for public health, they have to stay home. Well, you know, um, we just have to take it, I think, two weeks at a time. Uh, when it takes longer to plan something, um, then you should cancel. I mean, that's why, you know, UCI canceled commencement. Mm-hmm. A lot of the conferences that I'm supposed to go to all the way through May have been canceled. Mm-hmm. The UC Global Health Institute, UC Global Health Day was scheduled for UC Santa Cruz on May 2nd. We've decided to do a two-hour Zoom session instead of everybody going to Santa Cruz. But mm-hmm. those things are, you know, relatively inconsequential uh, compared to somebody not knowing when they will go back to work and start earning a right. pay. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think we have to really think through uh, what would be appropriate time and what might be too short or too long mm-hmm. based on the epidemiological data. Right. As I look at this, uh, John Hopkins University has an exceptional, I'm not versed in public health, but boy, their coronavirus uh, global identification map um, seems to be very good. And China seems to have been stuck on about 80,000 confirmed cases. I think they're at 81,000 now. So it seems like what they've done is working. Yeah, this is uh, well, this is the word in the in the community, um, you know, and, uh, and and we hope that they are successful in in keeping it, you know, where it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the worst fear that people had was the city like Beijing will become the epicenter mm-hmm. after Wuhan. But by essentially really strict uh, policy to keep the boundaries uh, of, of Wuhan relatively impermeable, uh, you know, China also built a hospital in nine days within Wuhan. Um, and I know the governor of New York, uh, or maybe it's the mayor of New York, is advising that we start building such facilities now because I'm not sure we can turn uh, things around in nine days as, as they did in China. Um, so, you know, 
some things will be easier for China in part because of their, you know, their government um, strategies. Um, you know, I, I, but also, you know, it was all hands on deck. But, you know, they already had some fear, uh, but by containing it, you know, transportation and all of those things, uh, I think they were able to to sort of implement this really stringent uh, conditions. We didn't, you know, when it was happening in China, we were talking about it, but I never expected that we would need those uh, policies here. Yeah. I think now we're talking about those policies. The question is if we can enforce it, uh, enforce the policies the way they did in China. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, Professor, it's really interesting. Even with all your expertise, I guess it just shows just how we haven't been down this road before. I do remember like two months ago, my wife and I were like, look at what's going on in China. Boy, if, yeah. if that comes here, you were like, I don't think that's going to happen here. What happened that it did? Is it was it just way more contagious than you ever dreamed, or you know, can you give us a little insight as an expert? Even your, you know, have have some surprise. Yeah, no, I I, I think it would, many um, experts will, if they are true, yeah. say they're surprised by mm -hmm. the rapidity at which we now have a global spread. Uh, I think, you know, I, I work in the uh, Department of State in, in D.C. for a, a year in the Office of International Health and Biodefense. It was soon after the Ebola outbreak. Mm -hmm. and, and my first assignment in the State Department was to uh, help bring ministers of health together uh, from all over the world under the global health security agenda. Uh, the global health security agenda was actually a presidential declaration that Obama uh, put in place to really help all countries uh, build this security blanket, <laughs> if you will, uh, because really global health security is as strong as the weakest country. As soon as you have an outbreak in one country, um, it threatens the entire system. Mm. So, you know, over the last five years, we've, I thought that the global health security agenda, all the money, with, you know, U.S., I think, invested $80 million to help countries who couldn't do it themselves. They all had uh, external experts come to evaluate their systems. So I, I think... You know, the surprise is that everything we've been doing didn't quite work the way we anticipated, that, you know, countries will quickly contain any outbreak before it becomes uh, a pandemic. In this case of COVID-19, I think we have to look first at the strategy that this virus uses, fairly different from the other COVID, uh, other coronaviruses, in transmission from one person to the other. In survival in the environment, uh, I think we have to really now look at all of the assumptions we had about, you know, how viruses can be transmitted so quickly. And the other 
part of it is the length of time it takes from infection to symptoms. Because right. we didn't, and I think most people um, traveled outside of China, if you will, uh, before anybody checked that, you know, are they having a fever, are they, are they uh, coughing too much? And so it, 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 the seeds had already been distributed pretty much all over the world before the alarm went on in Wuhan. And, and so, you know, even though we were surprised, uh, in retrospect, if you combine knowledge of um, what we call the, you know, the infectious dose, how many virus particles it takes to, you know, kick off an, you know, a symptomatic infection, the incubation period between the time of infection and symptoms appearing, and the distribution of people all over. You know, there was some news report that there is a company in Canada that predicted this by looking at uh, Internet exchanges, you know, not just Facebook, but mm -hmm. what people are talking about, mm -hmm. what kinds of symptoms seems to be um, yeah. prevalent. But during the winter period, where everybody knew that, yeah, flu is a common thing, it's hard to separate the noise from the signal. But they were able to do it. But what we need is more advanced warning systems, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that a month in advance, mm -hmm. they can detect tiny, tiny signals of potential problems. Mm -hmm. And then all countries have to respond, not just think, as most of us thought, what's going on in China, <laughs> right? right? And we yeah. didn't really put up the blocks as soon as we could have. Professor, when we go through a, a flu season annually, is it a worldwide flu season? You know, generally speaking, does everybody get the same flu? Is it like that? That's a mystery that I've been trying to understand for a long time. I think it does, um, but I think you give and take. You know, a few, uh -huh. uh, you know, a few, you know, weeks or months here and there. It's because I was, I have family in in Australia, for example, and our winter is their summer, uh -huh. and I right. and I always wonder do they get the flu at the other, you know, the right, other end of, right. Um, yeah. But I think worldwide the, the the flu season, you know, get vaccinated is always you know beginning around the fall, and. Um, is it that same yeah. vaccine that's worldwide? Is 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 everybody? Yeah, because that vaccine is based on you know our understanding of all of the previous gotcha. uh, flu viruses that we know. So mm -hmm. that because people travel all over the world, you right. you wouldn't want them bringing a different virus from Australia right. and then suddenly the U.S. population is it, so like, they study every flu. Uh, virus and try to create something that, that will work for everybody. Do you have um, a, Do you have a sense yeah. of how many people die from the common flu annually around the world? Well, it is it is a lot, and I think one of the reasons we were a bit complacent um, in this country was because very early when it started happening in China and people started talking about potentially. Uh, this becoming a problem for the U.S. You may remember that there were some, uh, and I don't think there were all politicians that might have been some scientists saying, what are people worried about? Uh, the flu 
the common flu kills anywhere from 40,000 to 60,000 people every year. Mm. And that, may, that is probably, uh, it is a very serious thing. Mm. But the, the difference is uh, most people do get infected but don't die. So if you look at how many people get infected versus how many people die for the common flu, it's still predominantly uh, those with underlying conditions and the elderly. But we also have a vaccine for it. So proportionately, the COVID-19 infection is a much more serious one because you're looking at a naive population. As far as we can tell, nobody had immunity to this before the current uh, pandemic. So every person who's infected is likely, you know, there's a higher possibility of serious, you know, illness uh, or death. Uh, um, so, yes, it is true that common flu kills, in, and, and I was just saying to someone yesterday, if we were mapping, you know, every day who died of the common flu and who's infected, it would be overwhelming. It's a lot of people, too many people. We still need more people to get vaccinated. Uh, but what we're seeing with COVID-19 is on top of that. Mm. And, and that's what scares people, is that uh, researchers and the public health workers, is that you know, COVID-19, we don't know where it's headed yet. There may still be mutants out there. There are reports that there are two variants of the virus. Some will be more deadly than others. And you don't want to find out after the fact. We want to get ahead of that call uh, before more serious variants uh, occur. Right. Wow. What are you thinking about for the next week? You know, most of us are lucky who walk in the university. So for me, you know, I've had meetings today just like I would any other day by Zoom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But it felt like I could continue to do my work, mm-hmm. um, you know, do my writings. I have a wet lab. That's, that's a different story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm lucky to not have it be, you know, all or nothing. You know, it's not like I have to go um, like somebody who has a, it's a you know, a nine to five job or they don't get paid. We depend on grants and there are always some things that... Um, that we can continue to do, uh, but it's very challenging. Uh, experiments that have to stop. Uh, so for me, it's you know it's finals week for my students. I am uh, at their service this week. I, we try to make as much accommodation for anyone who might feel uh, stressed, uh, but we also want to maintain the uh, high quality that you see education demands. Mm-hmm. Um, tomorrow, I have a meeting with our colleagues in Southeast Asia. We have uh, Thailand, uh, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, uh, and uh, Malaysia. All of those countries now have uh, challenges with COVID-19. We're going to do what we call an ECHO uh, training for uh, countries in Africa, uh, we have eight countries there, all of them now, except maybe Uganda, having uh, cases. So ANECO is having experts uh, uh, talk about you know, really cogent uh, 
events so that you know we can share information very quickly. Um, this was coordinated with UC Davis, uh, University of New Mexico, uh, Columbia University, uh, Echo Health Alliance, um, you know, and USAID is of course uh, footing the bill. But uh, this is very important because you know what I heard this morning was there's a second wave of COVID-19 um, infections in Hong Kong and some other countries in Asia. So while we are struggling to prepare for this current one, we need to look ahead. And this is the week that my group is doing that uh, so that we're not surprised again. Italy came out of nowhere to become yeah. Europe's unfortunate leader. What did they just have a couple of large gatherings where it it just exploded, or you know, why why has Italy become the second? Yeah, there, there's been uh, a few stories about this. Um, I think most of us over the last few years will pay attention. Um, so the workforce, especially Italy, is known for the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. The workforce. Um, for the fashion industry over the past few years, you know, really has attracted a lot of Chinese mm. um, into that industry. And if you look at where the epicenter is in Italy, Milan, mm. um, in the northern part of, of Italy, um, you know, that's a very fashionable, if you will, uh, area with you know, manufacturing industries in the textiles. So I, you know, my suspicion is that there's more frequent movement of people from China to Italy. Mm. Um, but also, you know, it's, you know, I've heard about gatherings, the fashion shows that bring people from all over the world to that particular region uh, there's a particular case study of of a of a woman who uh, you know was dubbed uh, you know is a global citizen who who travel and and are envied by a lot of people, but you know, <laughs> that um, suddenly become the spreaders. They they call them now. They're sort of the you know the powerful spreaders. Um, so you know I think. We will continue to get stories about this, and some will become studied in more formal ways and will be published in peer-reviewed journals to really understand uh, what happened uh, in Italy. But these are just observations based on uh, occupation and uh, immigration and, um, and just you know, global citizenry. Uh, that may pro- promote uh, spreading of infections such as this. But, you know, I think the mistake that we don't want to make is to jump to conclusions that then become ideology, like, oh, it's, you know, working immigrants, or, oh, it's you know, this industry or that industry. I think we have to be very careful about that, not stigmatize people uh, unnecessarily. But in cases where we have to take more precaution. Those are really always cheaper to do, and we know how to do those precautions. Whoa. Um, Professor Oladeli, 
thank you so much for you not only um you know were able to be with us for half an hour you you spent a whole hour with us we we so appreciate the work that you're doing and the time you spent with us and i i hope the invitation's always there i'll I'll keep in touch and if you're able to come back we we'd really appreciate it absolutely thank you kevin it went uh, quickly because there's so much to cover uh i'd be happy to do it again i hope um, that we're near the end of it rather than at the beginning, mm, uh, yes. but but there will always be something to talk about for for many many years about this pandemic. Thank you. All my best, Professor. S- stay healthy, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. Same to you. Thank Practice you. prevention. Thank you. All right, that was expert on public health, UC Presidential Chair Professor Oladeli Agun Satan. He was extremely uh, forthright and informing about what we're all going through. So thank you so much. He, again, founded uh, UCI's Department of Population Health and Disease Prevention. So we uh, look forward to speaking with him again. Hopefully it will be in times when we're over the hump of this thing and and, uh, where there's light at the end of the tunnel. Just a couple of notes, just to let you know that my podcast at www.bostonmeyer.com, I will continue on a weekly basis to cover the coronavirus and have uh, top UCI experts who will keep informing us about, you know, what's latest going on and uh, I am finding that I am getting a lot of information that uh, you know you don't always hear on the uh, on the news shows because it's sound bites and sensational and so forth. So I think it's relevant what's uh, on my podcast. So I encourage um, all of you to to stay with it. It's www.bostonmeyer. That's B is in Bravo. O S S is in Sierra. E-N is in November, M is in Mike, E-Y is in Yankee, E-R. It's phonetic, bossandmeyer.com. You can also reach me uh, by email at kboss, K is in Kilo, B-O-S-S, kboss at KUCI.org. Love to hear from you and promise that I will uh, get back to you with as much information as I can give you. Please stay healthy. Uh, keep washing your hands. I was recommended to me that 20 seconds of thoroughly washing your hands is singing happy birthday to you. They told me it was uh, sing it twice, but I sing it fast. So I have to sing it three times. And I got to tell you, it's a little bit of levity in all this uh, heaviness um, that uh, I sing happy birthday to me. I sing it to my wife. I sing it to people I don't like. (laughs) And people I love. So it's just, uh, it's a little uh, respite in in it all. Um, Thank you again. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Be well, be safe. Hunker down, we'll get through this. So long, everybody.